This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Lydia Fairhall is the executive producer of Ilbidgeri Theatre Company. Ilbidgeri being Australia's leading and longest running Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander theatre company. And Lydia, I get the feeling that uh, everybody at Ilbidgeri would have been celebrating a, a little bit yesterday with the announcement that Ilbidgeri as a company has received from the Victorian government uh, a, the Creative State Commission, the first Creative State Commission, uh, which means that in financial terms, the company has received $931,450 to to make a major new theatrical work. That is correct. So we're obviously really, really excited um, and it's something we've been keeping under wraps for a while, so it's really good to get it out there in the world. Um, But I think equally um, we're very humbled, you know, and this this story in particular because of the, the kinds of things that we're exploring, we're constantly reminded that it, particularly as First Nations women that it was only one or two generations ago and even still sometimes today where an opportunity like this was just it would have felt like seemed like science fiction you know so yeah we're, we're excited but we're equally as humbled and kind of um, really clocking the the gravity of duty of, of what's to come over the next three years. So the the funding almost a million dollars in funding will allow the development of a new theatrical work Bar Grook um, honouring and telling the stories of uh, Indigenous Victorian women. And yep. one of the things that I think is from uh, the, the creative side of things, even before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the work itself, um, there's a, a great quote from uh, Ilbidri's art, uh, artistic director, Rachel Mazza in The Guardian, that I just wanted to read, which kind of... Um, Money buys time and that's where you're going to get the magic. That's where you're going to get the good stories and the real stories, the stories that matter. So yet money does buy time, it buys creative development and in this case it will allow uh, in-depth the exploration and then the telling, Mm. as Rachel says, of stories that matter. What is the story of Bargrook? Well, basically it's a three-year theatre project and it is something that we've been wanting to do for a while and when the Creative States Commission opportunity came up, it was really the first time that we've been able to sit down and think what does a major-scale Koori Victorian work feel like and look like and because of the kind of changes we've been going through this year within the company, we're able to straight away sit with our elders in residence, Nawi Carolyn Briggs and Uncle Larry Walsh, and as well um, our key partner Caroline Martin, who's the director and founder of a of a First Nations consultancy called Yalakut Manung, and also of course a Bunwarang custodian. So we're all sitting around as a, as a group and thinking about what this work could be and straight away we were really drawn to the stories of women and really acknowledging that for over 2,000 generations in Victoria and across the country, women have absolutely been the nurturers, the creators, the protectors, the mobilisers of our communities, but uh, their voices have been the least heard and their stories the least told. So essentially, Bargrook is absolutely a commitment to making sure that those voices are amplified and that those stories make it to the stage. 
So in terms of the stories that are going to be told, uh, I would imagine then now begins uh, a long process of listening to oral tradition and Mm -hmm. writing that down and and finding ways to articulate and dramatise some of the stories of uh, Koori women in Victoria. Yeah, we've kind of deeply thought about the process going forward. So for us, there's kind of been a a three-layered approach. The first is whose stories have not been told, how do we engage properly with those stories? So we're going to go on about a two-year process where we'll be heading out to communities across Victoria and running what we're calling Yulange Yarning Circles. So that is the moment where we're working with both primary source material, so things like the Board of um, Protection Records and also a series of letters that were written by uh, Koori women in the 1800s, and then going out into community and working with and talking to the descendants about those oral stories and how that kind of matriarchal resistance has really continued on generation after generation. Now, some of the letters you're talking about, I know, are written by a woman, a remarkable woman, Louisa Briggs, yeah. uh, who uh, was uh, involved at uh, certainly for at one point with the Corandirk mm-hmm. Aboriginal Mission up near Healesville. Yeah. And the story of Corandirk has become better known over over recent years, in part because of uh, a collaboration between Ilbidri and La Mama. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so Corin Dirk, the history of Corin Dirk is really important. But again, often as you've as you've suggested, that history has sometimes focused on the the male side of the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, working with Caroline Martin, who's a direct descendant of Louisa, is essential in that process because she has what she calls the genetic responsibility to talk about Louisa and her legacy and really how um, her not, not only Louisa but the women that were around at that time were really um, kind of shaped how we move forward as a community really over the last, you know, 200 years, but also into the future as well. And I know that one of the responses to the letters of complaint that Louisa wrote was that she got kicked off Corin Dirk uh, and uh, moved to the Ebenezer Mission Station uh, up in uh, the Mallee country in Victoria's West. And Mm -hmm. once she was there, she started causing trouble again. So she was clearly determined, headstrong, capable, a thorn in the side of the kind of white patriarchal managers. Yeah, and I think, you know, you hear similar stories across the whole country. These women were not only leading rebellions, but they were doing it at a time where every single one of their movements was governed by the state. So the tension that these kind of political um, active, political activism was happening with is just extraordinary. And you see how that carries over generation after generation. And part of the essence of this work is that to some extent, we're still writing those letters in, in, in different um, circumstances, but we're certainly still pushing forward our political and self determining aspirations as a people. Now, what? when did you actually find out that you'd got kind of the, the Creative State Commission and that this project could go ahead? Because I know it, it, the announcement was made only yesterday. Yeah, yeah. But I, I know in the, in the way that funding programs work that you must have known for a little while, but what was the original response? Who got the phone call to say? Yeah, we have been embargoed for a while. I got a phone call on a late Friday afternoon from the Minister's advisor uh, and she said, you know, a late call on a Friday can only really be a good thing, can't it? So um, Martin Foley that day had been um, in contact with Rachel Mazza, our artistic director as well. So we've known for a little while. Um, And, you know, it was just a a very rigorous and 
quite extraordinary experience really going for the funding itself. You know, the final moment was sitting in a room with 15 panellists and there were three black women in the room, myself, Caroline, and our creative director, Kamara Bell-Wikes. And, you know, what started out as a really quite corporate and formal um, procedure turned into a very warm and loving and quite emotional experience for everybody in the room and so we left feeling like even that in itself was a monumental occasion regardless of the outcome that's that is a, a very significant outcome because as you say to to change the mindset and the and the tone in a room to mm. go from kind of to formal yeah. kind of uh to to actual kind of to, to yarning, to, to just talking and having conversation and sharing rather yeah. than it, it being a, a, some kind of interrogation is a sign that the, the emotion invested in this project is clearly infectious. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why some of the um, conversations have been around, wow, this is such a new approach. But really for us, this is something so familiar and so embedded in how we think and feel as First Nations people. But you know, there isn't this level of investment and support for First Nations performing arts happening anywhere else in the country. And I think at the times in the past where it has come close, it's absolutely been the non-Indigenous mainstream companies that have really benefited from that and also in turn, therefore, the non-Indigenous creatives that have kind of held that cultural authority and and that means that they end up having the kind of cultural rights and responsibilities to tell our story. So probably what feels different about Bargrook is that it's a really bold statement saying that we are capable, we have the capacity, we have the skills, we have the authority and it is time for us to tell our stories our way. If you've just tuned in, uh, I'm chatting with Lydia Fairhall, who's the executive producer of Ilbidgery Theatre Company, and we're talking about the the fact that Ilbidgery have received from the Victorian government uh, almost a uh, uh, million dollars for a long term development over several years of to create a, a, a major new theatrical work, Bargrook, which is telling the stories of. Uh, uh, First Nations, Indigenous women, Koori women here in Victoria. Uh, it's, I think, one of the, the things that, for me, that resonates about just how significant it, this is, is in my day job at Arts Hub, I talk to theatre makers all around the country mm. and uh, and companies all around the country who, and just recently talking to, uh, to colleagues up in Queensland about the fact that Queensland doesn't have a major... Uh, kind of Aboriginal uh, Torres Strait Islander arts company funded in the mm. way that Ilbidgeri is and so forth. And yeah. I've had conversations with people about the fact that one of the most major theatrical works exploring um, Aboriginal stories was Secret River Told from a White mm-hmm. Perspective, which encouraged us to empathise with kind of white yeah. uh, perpetrators of colonial violence. Mm. So this is not just changing tack and changing mm. narrative it's it's a really it, it's a clear statement of uh, the importance of the people who own the stories mm. telling the stories yeah and like you were alluding to earlier and with rachel's quote in the in the guardian really our work does take longer and it does need more resources so to be able to begin that process with that funding committed is kind of life-changing really and and I think you know the trajectory of First Nations theatre hasn't happened in isolation to our political aspirations and challenges as a community you know it was only in the 50s where we were kind of presenting our work as fiction on a stage to have to even have the possibility of getting it out there and certainly between then and now there have been times where it has been necessary for us to compromise some of our cultural integrity really to get the work out and to keep pushing forward 
that's okay for a time, but you want to keep moving. And and I think this project is that statement. It's it's a commitment from Creative Victoria. It's a commitment from Elbidgeri to say that it's no longer business as usual when it comes to First Nations theatre making. Lydia, when can we expect to see Bargrook on uh, Victorian stages? It will be sometime in 2021 at the Arts Centre Melbourne. Fantastic. I genuinely can't wait to see it. And I also look forward to learning more about the, the creative developments and the process of building and making this work because to me that's just as inspiring and fascinating as seeing a finished work on stage. If you want more information about Ilbidgeri Theatre Company and what they're doing, which includes the current national tour of Which Way Home, jump online ilbidgeri.com.au That's I-L-B-I-J-E-R-R-I ilbidgeri.com.au One of our nation's most significant theatre companies. Lydia Fairhall, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. An upcoming production at the Malthouse, which previews tonight and opens tomorrow night, uh, was getting some fantastic reviews when it was on up at uh, up in Sydney and uh, described as hugely entertaining by Time Out. Uh, four and a half stars from Limelight, four and a half stars from the Daily Review, four stars from the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, it's called Blackie Blackie Brown, or to give it its full title, Blackie Blackie Brown, the traditional owner of death, and uh, is a kind of satirical revenge comedy. And uh, I'm joined in the studio by the cast, Ash Flanders and Delara Williams. Delara, you play Blackie Blackie Brown. Ash, you play everyone else. <laughs> yes. Welcome. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for having having all of me. <laughs> so, Delara, you're stepping into the production because the uh, the original uh, kind of performer in Sydney, I understand, is injured or something. So, yeah. yeah. So um, I got caught in a uh, few weeks into the, um, the performance and because she couldn't go on and she was injured and had to learn the play within four days and was up and running <laughs> on that Saturday. And so they sort of palmed off a lot of uh, matinees and stuff to me to give her the time to rest and then it led to it coming down to Mold House. They were like, you know what? Do the full run. Yeah. <laughs> this is your chance. But stepping in with only four days rehearsal, that's pretty intense. Yes. My brain was on overload that whole week. But with the help of Ash and, and the cast and the crew and, yeah, just everybody just felt really comfortable and made me want to do it more. I, I will say as well that if you see the show, it's so technically challenging for any actor. It took me and Megan weeks and weeks to get it up and Delara was off book in four days, like knowing everything and there's fight choreography and there's AV, we're in a cartoon, so it's a lot to learn and yeah, she made me and Megan look really lazy. <laughs> oh, well, they did all the hard work before that. So. Thank you, Delara. <laughs> Hmm, yes. Uh, somehow, though, I, I can't quite imagine you ever being lazy, Ash. I've, I've seen you perform. So, yeah. And also Megan and Delara are best friends, so it's all very all about Eve. I have a feeling there's some cahoots about, and I think yes. you did something. So tell us a little bit more about the play itself because it's been described as a kind of like a Tarantino-esque revenge comedy. It's about um, uh, an Aboriginal woman possessed by the spirit of her ancestor who then sets out to kill everybody responsible for massacring uh, her ancestor and her people. But it's, I know... I'm just thinking, kind of like, just that encapsulation alone. I read that and I was like, I totally have to see this show. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it, that is absolutely, that's like the gem, that's the quest. But, uh, of course, being an Akia Louis play and with Declan directing, it's like it gets, the questions get harder and harder about accountability and how you make things right from uh, a very violent colonial history that Australia has. And with me in it, you know that it's also very stupid and <laughs> is full of a lot of dumb gags. So it, it, it has a very serious... Uh, element to it obviously and something that you can really get into and hopefully talk about after the show mm-hmm. but the way it's presented is incredibly accessible and fun and silly and at times very moving that would be Delara's work and at times very stupid and that would be my work it's a balancing act <laughs> and it's clearly been well cast in that regard <laughs> now Delara you're um, uh, from Sydney yes. uh, grew up around uh, Redfern, Maroubra. Yeah. And studied at night, yeah? Yes. So I just graduated in November um, last year and had the privilege to work on a few projects and obviously this project now. Um, so I've been very blessed to be... Um, I sort of always wanted to be a part of Nikia Louis's, um plays and everything, just seeing how she writes and... Yeah, and and also being close friends with Megan, I got to hear all the stories about what this was. So I was more excited to see it. And then once I saw it, it was this play that was out of this world. Like I, you can never compare it with something else. So it's so hard to explain to other people that have either has been to theatre or haven't that. It's nothing you can expect, so I'm so excited to be a part of it. It just sounds even tonally in terms of the shifts within the work from very broad comedy to black comedy to to effectively horror and shock and kind of the... I've, I know from having read an interview, uh, a friend Stephen Russell's got an interview that's in The Age, just been published in The Age today, uh, that talks about the the audience almost kind of like cheering on the violence as one by one, kind of uh, Delorio your character is killing people off. But then the fact that by the end of the play, and without wanting to give anything away, there's nonetheless kind of the audience are then suddenly complicit uh, in, in kind of a, a massacre of their own. So... Uh, I get the feeling Nakia is like there's a lot going on in this play and she's found somehow the way to balance it and make it work. Yeah, it's a very deep provocation, obviously, this idea of like a of retribution and taking out the descendants of the people who wronged you um, hundreds of years ago, especially when you, you try to allocate blame or ascribe culpability, it becomes very complicated. And so the play looks at that from lots of different angles as it progresses. The arguments get harder and the lines between what's good or bad become very blurred. And then at the end you are left uh, just thinking about... Uh, I think what we do with our with our history, which is what Nakia's play is really all about. It's how you move forward, how you imagine a better future. Those are the real questions at the heart of the piece. And also I get the sense that it's interrogating the fact that what I might call history is lived experience for for Indigenous people. Um, we don't live in a post-colonial world. Uh, we live in a world in which the impact of colonisation is still kind of echoing and rippling uh, through people's lives, and that's one of the other things that this play is exploring. Yeah, um, it really does show uh, a lot of thought, especially going from the Kia, but that sort of echoes the thoughts of a lot of Indigenous people of what has uh, colonisation has happened to us and um, everyone around the country. And this play, I find, 
is a great way to sort of question things and explore things. Um, I feel like a lot of, or I find like a lot of Australians very, uh, very historically correct and everything. So I, I like the idea of exploring outside that and, and what it is like to sort of take revenge and everything, which is a thought of a lot of people, um, Indigenous people, when it's, it comes around the topics of Australia Day and um, now we're going into NAIDOC week and the the, th- the thing of um, representation and respect and, and all that other stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's a great sort of conversation starter about learning your history. And, and also, like, I, I'm such a history buff, so I love my history and everybody else's uh, history and the more you learn the more you can learn from it and that we're not repeating the cycle which then we sort of touch base it in the play of trying not to repeat history the play that we're talking about is blackie blackie brown traditional owner of death and i like putting the emphasis of of death there because (laughs) kind of like there's a sense in a way from everything that i've read about the work and some of the images i've seen that on one level it's it's a cartoon come to life Mm -hmm. kind of you're you're playing kind of like a um an aboriginal superhero in 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 many ways and uh as you've talked about the the digital projection and that aspect of the play which is bringing that kind of cartoon element to life what's it like to try and act within a cartoon world but also still find the right note of realism and drama when the play calls for it? Um, I feel like that's something I do a lot of the time in my work. (laughs) I could not be happier to live in a cartoon. I really wish I could. So I don't find it hard to to play big but play truthfully as Mm. well. I think the thing is you've always got to remember this character thinks this world is not a cartoon. This character thinks this is their real world. It's just that everything's dialed up to ten, which if you knew my family, that's a really easy thing for me to do (laughs) because (laughs) it's just the way people are in my family. Everything's dialed right up, so I have no problem. And you get to make great big choices. It's almost like... You know, being in a cartoon is kind of like being, I imagine, in a commercial musical in that you can make big choices and big gestures, only I don't have to sing and I don't have to do what someone did in America 30 years ago. I can make my own thing. It also helps that uh, the play is directed by Declan Green, who you have a long history of oh, yeah. and, and creative partnership with as well. Yeah, he's an albatross tied around my neck. <laughs> <laughs> is that a challenge for you to step into, though, given that those two have got that long shared history of performance and making work and together and presumably some kind of creative shorthand uh, which comes out of that, for you to step into to that and say, well, no, hold on, what exactly do you mean when the director says this, kind of given that I know, Ash is going to know exactly what Declan means? But... Oh, I just like to repeat the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm very sort of honest about if I don't get it, I'll ask and... But seeing that, I felt so comfortable and I had my own sort of uh, friendship with Megan, who's a, the lead oh, in, back in Sydney. So we had our own secret language that was different for them. So there was an understanding of these sort of artists coming together and working long term. Um, but, yeah, I, I found it easy, really, to step in um, just because it was so welcoming and Ash sort of jumped in as well and helped me out that week while also going into a performance that that evening. So, yeah, props to you, man. Hey, I'm a giver. (laughs) (laughs) Do book to see Blackie Blackie Brown, traditional owner of death. I'm enormously looking forward to it. So, chookers for the run. Thank you. uh, you. uh, I will see you both at the Malthouse. I've been talking with uh, Delara Williams and Ash Flanders.
and joining us on the line is David Bertolt, the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival. David, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Brilliant to talk to you. Very uh, happy to, to catch up with you as well. This is your fourth program for the Brisbane Festival as Artistic Director. And uh, one of the first things that I noticed uh, with the program was that obviously trying to encourage people to dive into a festival is always a creative challenge for a festival director such as yourself. Um, I often talk to friends who say they feel overwhelmed by the choices, they don't know where to start. Consequently, perhaps they don't end up seeing anything. I get the feeling you're very conscious of that because you've structured your festival in effectively three acts so that kind of audiences can go, oh, I'll just go to something in Act 1 or maybe I'll devote myself to Act 3. Tell us about the rationale for that structuring of your program? Well, I think you've just explained it brilliantly. Like, people do get overwhelmed with, you know, 70, 80 productions across three weeks. And and it, it was a bit of a no-brainer for me, actually, because it is a three-week festival. Divided into three acts seemed to be a really sensible thing to do and to gather things around particular uh, themes or tones um, in each of the three weeks gave people you know, an, an easier way to find a pathway through the festival and then hopefully to dip into each of the acts to get the to get the full story. That's certainly, to me, one of the delights of working as an arts journalist is being able to dive into a festival because seeing one or two shows in isolation is great, but to get a, a sense of the scope and the themes and the, the, the cultural narratives that are running through a festival, it does help to be able to see a range of works. Now, in the past, your festivals have tapped into themes around some quite political themes, including uh, representation of uh, people from uh, the Congo, for example, to explore the war that was going on there. You've had environmental issues kind of surfacing in the festival as well. Thematically, what's going on with your programming this year? Well, um, Act One is uh, very much about home and memory and gender is a big thing, as it is in many parts of that world at the moment, and a way and the ways in which home, memory, and gender intertwine. So, there's quite a, there's a, quite a number of works that speak to those ideas in one way or another. And then in the second act, it's very much stories of the individual against. The, the great forces of, you know, society or nature or fate or our own DNA, you know, the classic stuff, the drama. Uh, and then Act 3 is uh, a little bit more of a party mode in a way. But there are things that go through all of the three acts as well. There's quite a lot of contemporary popular music, for example, and that's, that's something that Brisbane's very proud of. So that just reflects the city, I suppose. And Brisbane's also proud of being quite a, a circus city as well. Yes, it's one of the great circus cities of the world, actually. It's, it's, you know, there are probably a good six or seven circus companies here that, and, and quite a number that tour the world very regularly. Of course, Circa is based here in Brisbane, and it's probably the finest circus company of its type in the world. And, um, you know, it's toured to about 40 countries, I think, now, and played over to a million people. And we're very proud to have the premiere of its latest work. Uh, and we've commissioned about four works from Circa over the last six years or so. So you know, we're very proud of our role and its its growth. You've also poached their general manager to your festival, I believe. <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. So we're, we're quite close to Circa. So our 
our new uh, executive director is coming, coming here, so um, he, he'll um, take the leadership of the organisation here. So, uh, yeah, very happy about that. Now, uh, the new work that, from Circa that's in the program this year uh, appears on the front cover of the festival brochure as well, so it's a, a sign of, uh, I guess, the, the significance of the work and the relationship with the company. Tell us a little bit about En Masse. It's a very big work, and it sits in two halves, first half winter, second half spring, or first half endings, second half beginnings, you might say. And the first half is very much about Schubert and those great song cycles, you know, and particularly Winterreise or Winter's Journey, you know, about the individual against nature, you know, wandering through a winter landscape. But that music's been recomposed by a Swedish sound artist and the English tenor, um, Rob Murray, is coming uh, from London to sing it with us uh, and, of course, joined by the by 10 of the top circa acrobats. And then the second half is actually a circus setting, a Rite of Spring, um, which is the first time the Rite of Spring has been set for circus. Of course, you know, one of the great pieces of of music, particularly dance music. And Stravinsky had, has two authorised versions of that, the orchestral version we know, but he also wrote a, a version for two pianos. And so we're going to play that live with two pianos on stage with Tamara Anatislavska uh, and Michael Kern Harvey, two of our great pianists. So that's a lot of serious music making in that and taking off big themes, but, um, you know, with Circa's great skill to boot, so it's a it's a monumentally ambitious show. Now, it's not just uh, Circa's on mass that's got uh, significant uh, vocal artists visiting from overseas. Uh, another of the uh, the key works in your festival this year, uh, the Benjamin Britten's uh, Peter Grimes. You've uh, pulled in someone, uh, Stuart Skelton, described as the best Peter Grimes, uh, so the the perfect fit for the role. Why this production in your festival? Well, I was quite keen to to present a production of Peter Grimes, and for my money, you know, the greatest music drama in English, I think, and and feeling particularly current, I think, you know, the individual against the mob, and and in a way, it reflects the rise of the right wing in a sense, um, and uh, and I thought, well. If you're going to do something as big as Peter Grimes, let's find the best Peter Grimes in the world. And I thought, which indisputably, I think at the moment, Stuart, Peter, uh, Stuart Skelton is. And I didn't think he'd be available at all. You know, normally those singers of his calibre are, you know, booked out five years in advance. But he was uh, rehearsing Wagner at the Royal Opera in Covent Garden in September, said he was busy, but said he also had 10 days off in rehearsals and he could fly over and do two performances. So, great luck. It is. I, I love the idea of somebody just going, I've got a break, but yeah, sure, I can do some more work in it. It uh, <laughs> says something about, I don't know, the, uh, I, I am sometimes concerned about the work-life balance for, for many people working in the arts, but uh, this is perhaps another example, but I'm sure it will result in a, a wonderful and memorable performance for audiences at Brisbane Festival. The festival is also working with local artists and Queensland artists, so uh, the independent company The Good Room uh, premiering a new work at your festival this year i've been meaning to ask you We're, we've also got a new work from the great queensland company dance north one of the uh, the the handful of professional dance companies working regionally in australia so how important is it for brisbane festival to to work with queensland artists 
Well, interestingly, Dance North is, you know, I think you'd be on pretty safe ground if you said they were the most adventurous contemporary dance company in the country right now. And, and Goodroom, as you say, an independent company from Brisbane who are doing some extraordinarily good work in recent times. And I'm really pleased that the festival is being able to be with them for two or three years now. This is the third year in a row we've presented a work from Dance North and this is the third show of Good Rooms we've presented as well. So, you know, they're long-term relationships and both of them are world premieres. In fact, there are eight world premieres in the festival this year, which I'm very, very pleased about. And, and I think, you know, a festival that can be a great place to to launch bold new work. Now, something else that the festival is doing this year is... Going to pres- I mean, the, the festival has a history of uh, open, public, accessible work, so Riverfire, uh, late in the festival, um, which I understand you've had to learn quite a lot about fireworks and fighter jets in your four years uh, <laughs> as Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival to date. But you're also doing something new this year, uh, telling um, uh, a local uh, Aboriginal story each night of the festival as a free event, again on the river as well. Yeah, the river is very important in Brisbane, of course. It, it winds through the city. It floods all the time. So it's very much part of, you know, the, the kind of life of the city. And not, not many people know many traditional stories of the creation of the river. So we've worked with the Nunoko, uh, Yabra Dance Company to, to tell one of the creation stories of the river. And, uh, and in, and in the form of a big light and laser spectacular from the middle of the river itself. So it'll be, um, yeah, a big, it's a 10 minute light and laser show and, you know, on, on big water screens, you know, um, pushed into the air and we'll do it three times every night right through the festival. And coming back to what we were talking about earlier, as, a, as an entry point for people uh, into the festival, uh, an entry point particularly for, for families and for people for whom uh, a kind of a big budget uh, theatre spectacle or operatic spectacle might be uh, financially inaccessible but also artistically inaccessible. inaccessible. So what uh, you're kind of doing with these events is then, yeah, again, creating something that people can go to that, go, well, that was Brisbane Festival, what else can we see what can we go to so uh, i think again events like that not only uh helping uh locals learn the aboriginal stories of the river and of the area but also helping the people of brisbane again find a way to to enter the festival and take part in it which then encourages them to see more yeah that's right i mean you know big public spectacles of that type of course draw people who might maybe never heard of brisbane festival so we're doing that right in front of our big festival hub, the big village we build by the river called Treasury Brisbane Arcadia. And, and so there's this, there's a, there's, um, a Spiegel tent there and various other, you know, installations and performative experiences that you can have. So we've structured that site this year to really allow people some easy entryways into the festival if they might have, you know, popped down to the river to see this light and laser show. So yeah, we've been very, you know, very conscious of that and of, of creating some easy pathways for people. And finally, David, just before you go, one of the other things that Brisbane Festival does is 
Brisbane currently doesn't have a fringe festival, so it means that Brisbane Festival has the opportunity then to to kind of curate uh, almost a, a festival within a festival, a mini fringe, if you will, the Theatre Republic program, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is was your first curatorial role at Brisbane Festival before you were artistic director, wasn't it, to create the, a kind yeah. of independent theatre program uh, within the festival program itself? Yeah, I enjoyed doing that under my predecessor, Noel Staunton, and uh, I was artistic director of La Boite Theatre Company here in Brisbane, and he asked me to curate a little program of independent theatre company, of independent uh, theatre for the festival. And it's interesting, you know, um, unlike, say, Adelaide Festival or Perth Festival or most famously Edinburgh Festival, where there's a huge fringe that happens concurrently with the you know, the, the big international art festival. That's not the case in Brisbane. And and, and there isn't a, a fringe festival of any kind of significant size uh, at, at any time in the year in Brisbane either. So it means that we can happily um, curate some, some of the best of independent work that you might otherwise find in fringe festivals. And that's, that's you know, even the presence of the Spiegel tent is part of that and certainly the Theatre Republic there has been home to some wonderful Melbourne independent theatre companies over the years I might say so it it provides another opportunity to connect with independent artists from around the country and indeed around the world. And certainly at uh, Theatre Republic this year for Brisbane Festival you can see the wonderful troupe Yummy uh, but uh, from Melbourne but also from uh, Perth uh, a double bill from the company The Last Great Hunt their show Fagstag which was a a Melbourne Fringe Award winner a few years ago and its companion work a a much more recent work Barley Um, uh, there's a a fantastic kind of dance piece being performed inside a hotel room uh, Beladerung which will be a very intimate piece as well uh, and which I missed in its uh, Melbourne season last year so I think I'm going to have to come up to uh, Brisbane Festival just to see it so I can tick that one off my dance card. (laughs) And Dean Tong's Romeo is not the only fruit you know which was uh, much enjoyed in Melbourne recently so a lesbian rom-com musical so yeah so that'll be part of the festival as well. So uh, much to see at this year's Brisbane Festival more information at brisbanefestival.com.au David Bertolt many thanks for joining us. Thanks Richard great to talk One of the things I love about live performance is that when you sit down in the theatre, the person who comes on stage may be a stranger in the room at the start of the show, but by the end, if they've woven their magic appropriately, they feel like a friend. Uh, My next guest is one such performer, uh, singer, writer, theatre director, producer, composer, festival director, and sometimes described as uh, an Australian treasure. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Robin Archer. Good morning. Hi, Richard. Lovely to have you in. Thank you very much. Now... You're performing, uh, coming up at Art Centre Melbourne, Dancing on the Volcano, which is um, part of your ongoing fascination and commitment to cabaret as an art form, and in particular in in documenting the historical origins of cabaret, in this instance, uh, the the period fondly known as the Weimar Cabaret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Cabaret started in the 1880s, really, in, in the form of classic European uh, cabaret in Paris in the 1880s and it spawned at the turn of the century to Vienna and St Petersburg and Zurich and Barcelona and it kind of hit Germany 
<clears throat> excuse me, it hit Germany just at a at a time when it could be useful in terms of political commentary. So with the rise of National Socialism uh, during that intervening period between the two wars, um, things that could be said uh, could no longer be said on the main stage, could for a moment be said underground in the cabaret. I, I tend not to want to romanticise this too much because... You know, the the World War ended in 1919 and all the songs in this show were written, apart from one at the very end, between 1919 and 1933. We have to understand that in that tiny period of 14 years, we see the collapse of an entire society. So happy and dancing, World War One is over. Thank goodness for that. We can go back to having a bit of fun. Um, we can have funny little, you know, commentary on social manners, funny little songs, including those by the poet and playwright Bertolt Brecht, um, but a whole lot of other writers too. By 1933, all of those writers either left Berlin or died. They were either going to be imprisoned, tortured, murdered, or they managed to get out in exile. And for me... To be able to witness the collapse of a society within song and a couple of spoken word pieces in a, in a period of 14 years is an incredibly cautionary tale. Um, the music is great. These were serious composers. They were at the... You have to imagine that in 1927, the Thruppany Opera was the most successful show on stage that Berlin had seen in decades. These guys were absolutely at the top of their form and suddenly, like five years later, they are knowing that unless they get out of Berlin, they will be murdered. They will be imprisoned and murdered. So to be able to witness that, speaking of witness from your guests earlier, to be able to witness that decline through the arts, through song, is absolutely, it's both exhilarating and devastating at the same time. And that's what this show has honed in on. Now, some of the repertoire in Dancing on the Volcano, you've been performing for almost 40 years. Indeed, yeah. What keeps it uh, for you personally from getting stale? Well, they're, they're tricky songs for a start. The performance of these songs, you've got to get the words and music right for a start. That's always a good challenge and some of them are trickier than others. But there's a satiric stance that you also have to adopt. So this is not just delivering to an audience and saying everything I say, you've got to take at face value. You've actually got to be able somehow to say, yes, listen to the words I'm saying, but don't take them all at face value. Think about what's behind it. So you've got to deliver a satiric stance. That's one of the things. So personally, as a performer, I'm always trying to better 70% on any night. If I get 75, I think it's a great night. So it's a great physical challenge. Um, but secondly, it's the amazing pertinence of some of these songs. So we're always shifting this repertoire, this concert repertoire, a little bit. This time we've reintroduced a song from the Thruppany Opera. It's called The Ballad of Sexual Obsession. It was written just over 90 years ago. Why would we be introducing that particular song at this particular time? Some of these songs actually hit you like a ton of bricks about almost 100 years old and yet they are so relevant today and so important and that's what continues to keep me you know on on the bandwagon of this particular repertoire I'll never get through it in my lifetime I'm already planning a concert with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra for next year um, that'll cover more and more of this material we've just started to dive into a bit more of Friedrich Hollander the man who wrote Falling in Love Again for Marlena Dietrich in The Blue Angel um, we sing three of his songs and they're new to this repertoire this time round so 
So it's rich and uh, it's one of those projects that I know I'll never get through in my lifetime. You couldn't have anything better. Falling in Love Again is one of the songs that you are singing in this production. It, it, it is, yeah, yeah. And, and that's a really interesting point, I think, in terms of performance because you will get a lot of people approaching this repertoire as a, oh, look at sexy me, you know, I'm going to put the fishnet stockings on and the... Yeah, you know, all the stuff that the, people associate with the cliché. The decadent glamour. Ca- the, the kind of cabaret, the, you know, the, the, the Ebb Candor musical with Liza Minnelli, which wasn't too far from the truth, but it's the, it's a kind of showbiz glitz end of it. I don't do that. I actually stand as a sort of um, impersonal conduit between the audience and the text. I want the audience to get the music and the text. I don't particularly want them to focus on me. Now, that said, these are very entertaining programs. There are some very, very funny songs. Um, one called I've Just Gone and Murdered My Grandma. That's hysterical. Um, <laughs> but also the deep sigh of a lady in a troubled night who's whinging about her husband who scratches and snores and she'd like... you know. So there are real comic songs in the beginning. But then, as I said, you start to get a little bit of, oh, I'm not sure beautiful little song by Spoliansky called I Know It Can't Be So and he says, you know, I'd love to see a beautiful democracy but I know it can't be so. Like, like you start to get that edge of nervousness and then you descend, you, you, you extend into the worst. There's a there's a fantastic song called Falada which is a reporter interviewing a dead horse and the horse has been cut down in the middle of the street because people are starving and they want the meat from the horse. So you really get that incredible end of, you know, the stock exchange crash in New York, utter depression, utter repression. Suddenly you get this incredible orator who stands up and says, um, I know we've got problems. I know how to solve them. I know who to blame. I can make Germany great again. And uh, I've got the final solution, which was, of course, the most horrific moment in the 20th century. So there are some... We're not in an identical situation now, but I think it's a real caution about how quickly things can change if you don't get active and speak up about the things that you're finding uncomfortable. It's absolutely a warning about complacency. Utterly, utterly. And... You know, interestingly, uh, my mentor, John Willett, and many other commentators said, you know, number one, there weren't two great world wars. There was only one with a little bit of a break in the middle. And Hitler would never have been elected in 1933 if the forces of the left hadn't been combating each other so much. So I look at America, for instance, and I see Clinton and Sanderson dividing the vote of the Democrats and allowing the Republican vote to to win in the end even with less actually what a million less votes so you've 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 just got to be on the watch you can't be too complacent I'm speaking to Robin Archer, who's performing Dancing on the Volcano at Art Centre Melbourne from the 9th to the 11th of July. Robin, given some of the the darkness of the material that you're exploring, I mean, we're talking about the worst excesses of humanity, some truly kind of events that would be hard to imagine had they not been documented. How do you protect yourself emotionally from that sort of material as a performer? Because as a, as a singer, as somebody who is presenting these, works you need to be truthful to them you can't adapt uh, an ironic distance because for some of the songs that would be damaging but Mm. to channel those kind of emotions to think 
think about the the horrors that are being documented through song. How do you protect yourself well, from that? Well, again, I take my I take my role as a performer and a, and a, I always think of myself as a singer, but in the arcane sense, that is somebody who brings stories to the audience. The old medieval trooper, you know, who was you didn't have a newspaper or a radio, you would uh, you would go round to the villages and sing the latest news. Um, in that. My Again, my, my mentor, John Willett, always said to me, if you make the audience cry during your performance, it's not because you are faking crocodile tears on stage. It is because you are telling the story so accurately that you make them cry or you make them move to action or something like that. So it's not in my best interest to deliver my best performance if I am faking emotion. What I have to do is keep my mind on the job. It would be not dissimilar, I think, from doctors. Doctors actually can't afford to get involved in the emotional situation of the of that situation or of their patients because if they're not absolutely dispassionate and doing their job properly, they're probably not going to be of service to their patients. I feel I'm a little bit like that. I have to concentrate on my craft telling the story well in order to have the maximum effect on the audience. Now, as I say, it is dark material, but guess what? The arts are the very, very best way in order for us to deal with dangerous topics and dangerous situations because we can deliver these messages with awe, with beauty, with the luscious enjoyment of the beautiful tunes that's behind them. So we, you know, we can do things, we can speak about difficult things in ways that nobody else can because we couple that in some kind of miracle of joy. And even when it's a bad message, even when it's a tough thing, we kind of do it with this combination tension of hard message, beautiful painting, beautiful film, beautiful music, you know, incredibly engaging theatre. So I guess my job is to be dispassionate and not get to... I don't believe that I've ever cried on stage or been so wrapped up in my own performance that um, I've been overcome. I've got a job to do like any other craftsperson. Does that dispassion extend to the programming that you do for festivals and the work that you do in that regard as well? Are you as focused on the job and telling the story and doing so in a dispassionate way but a way that is truthful when you're putting together... I mean, you uh, established 10 Days on the Island, for example, which has gone on to be a, a significant festival more recently have been doing some profound work up on the gold coast for example to create legacy and cultural change yeah what's your approach to programming is it the same as performing or does it require a very very different skill set i can't i kind of no i kind of feel like it's the whole thing is cabaret i mean talk about life is a cabaret i do feel that all the things i've ever done from when i was basically apprenticing myself to my dad, who was a stand-up comedian and singer, and watching the way he would put a show together, a variety show together. It's all about light and shade and it's about the way you put various things together. So if I'm doing a show like this one, like Dancing on the Volcano, or a festival or another program, I'm basically using the art of juxtaposition. That is, I'm putting things together in a way that will have people laughing at one moment, crying at another, listening to something they know very well and they love, then listening to something that they've never heard before. But it is about that kind of liveliness of the way you put things together. And, 
of course I am, as a programmer, I would always be giving the audience something that they can respond to emotionally but then something that they've got to listen a bit more carefully to and respond with the head and not just the heart. So it's it's about variety and I guess in the end that's a replica of our lives, isn't it? Our lives are going to always be moments of joy and celebration. Mo- I'm, not, I'm not a believer. Brecht once wrote in one of the songs in the Thrupani Opera, if all chase after happiness, happiness comes in last. I don't believe in chasing happiness. I think happiness is one of those fleeting moments anywhere, anytime, where you can just say, yep, right at this moment, unhappy, but it's it's just a fleeting moment and the rest of it is light and shade and as many people have said, um, it's not the happy, comfortable, complacent moments that keep us learning, it's actually the tough things that make us learn and I think putting shows together, concerts or festivals that's got all that sweep of life then resonates with your audience and that makes a success. Robin Archer, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.